an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Home Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. May Martinez. Senate Republicans block a bill to establish an independent inquiry into the January 6th Capitol Hill riot. And what happens in City Hall if LA Mayor Eric Garcetti heads off to be ambassador to India? We'll get into that and more in our weekly politics chat, State of Affairs. Plus, a first at Cal State of LA, a graduation story you won't want to miss. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for doing Friday with us. Coming up, we have a treat. The story of two Los Angeles-based violinists who hit the road during the pandemic to share their music with the West Coast. So please stick around for that. But we kick today off with State of Affairs. That's our weekly dive into the California politics pool. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti is believed to be President Joe Biden's pick for ambassador to India. Now, in a meeting with L.A. County supervisors, Janice Hahn said very tongue-in-cheek to him, Namaste. What does it say that Garcetti did not reply with, nah, I'm a stay here in L.A.? Plus, the January 6th Capitol, riot, Capitol assault on the Capitol that we all saw with our own eyes will not be looked at now by a bipartisan panel. And to discuss all of this, we're joined by Jack Pitney, professor at Claremont McKenna College and also author of the book Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Also with us, Christina Bellantoni, journalism professor and media center director at USC Annenberg. Jack, Christina, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Let's start with the Senate vote this morning. Senate Democrats needed 10 Republicans to vote in favor of establishing a panel that would have investigated the events of the January 6th storming of the Capitol. They fell short by four votes. Christina, that's the big news of the day. But is what happened actually a big surprise? Honestly, I am a little surprised. I spent 13 years covering Congress, uh, you know, being in Washington really longer than that. You know, I covered it a little bit from here, too. And I just, this feels to me like something that is a no brainer. And it just, is this really the thing you're going to stage your filibuster on? Like politically, um, I I figured they were going to work something out. Jack, what about you? A surprise to you? Uh, not too much. Uh, the vote was expected. And uh, so were the rationalizations. I mean, some said it was a partisan proposal, even though it was the result of a bipartisan compromise in the House. Uh, Senator Roy Blunt said it was too early to do this, even though with an investigation, you want to do it right away while memories are still clear. Uh, And uh, others said it would overlap with criminal investigations, but that's also true of many, many other investigations that uh, the Congress has staged or sponsored. So uh, the real reason is what Mitch McConnell reportedly admitted in private, and that is uh, the information that would come out of a commission investigation would be politically damaging. So 
they voted politics rather than the good of the country. So six senators voted uh, for the commission. Uh, Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, and Ben Sass. Five of those six voted to convict Trump earlier this year. Portman uh, did not. And actually, uh, Pat Toomey and Richard Burr voted to convict uh, earlier this year but skipped today's vote. Eleven senators, eleven senators skipped today's vote. Uh, Christina, what do you make of eleven senators saying, nah, I'm not going to show up today? Yeah, you know, they, they don't want this to be the political thing. You know, somebody, um, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, really, because you could face the the wrath of former President Trump. He made that clear that a vote for it was a vote against him. And um, if you voted against it, then, you know, you're sort of facing what the Democrats are going to bring to you and, and the argument that you should investigate something that was a huge failure on behalf of the law enforcement community. Jack, when it comes to the senators that did not show up, if they get asked about it, are they at all on the carpet to say one way or the other how they would have voted? Uh, They're going to face that question, and uh, the Republicans will probably all say that they would have uh, opposed it because they're more afraid of primary voters than they are of the general electorate. And even those who aren't up for re-election, like Pat Toomey, uh, have to face the consequences of uh, two years of getting uh, heckled by MAGA hats. So um, not at all surprising that they uh, chose to take an early Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. Lindsey Graham uh, was not never in support of the commission. He, he said he thought it would just turn into a, quote, partisan food fight. And he said the ongoing investigations by the Department of Justice and Senate committees uh, would be sufficient. Christina, not that there's any other option now, but are they sufficient? I mean, look, I, I'm not an expert in this, but it feels like the the model of the 9-11 commission is exactly right. Like there there needs to be some serious scrutiny laid on people who are you know there to protect congress there to protect the building and the history um this was a major deal and the sort of let's not investigate it message to me says the people are like ready to move on five months later not even five months later to something that you know the rest of the nation watched in horror and in any other society, in any other place in history, this would be something we talk about every single day, um, trying to understand it, not to mention the fact that there's going to continue to be more information that comes out as the criminal proceedings advance. Yeah, and Jack, Senate committees does not sound as uh, as full of teeth as a commission. But uh, I mean, at this point, considering that that's really the only option that's left, is that something that uh, Democrats might have to just maybe wrap their arms around with gusto because that's all that's left? Yeah. And I'm sure that they have been preparing for this uh, uh, option for quite a uh, quite a while because it was pretty clear that the Senate wasn't going to approve uh, an independent commission. And the key thing is a select committee that has subpoena power. And that's important because the uh, uh, people in the Trump administration routinely uh, dodged subpoenas, uh, simply uh, disregarded them. Uh, but now, if you have somebody who uh, ignores a subpoena, you do have a Justice Department that might uh, be empowered to press criminal charges of contempt of Congress. And that will get their attention. Uh, is this the uh, optimal way of going about it? No. But... Uh, Uh, a House Select Committee could indeed uncover a lot that we don't already know. 
You know, I remember last week, or when it, when this was in the House, 35 Republicans voted for it, despite uh, Kevin McCarthy, the GOP leader, trying to keep his troops in line. You know, when I saw that number 35, I thought maybe some of that sentiment would spill over to the Senate. Um, Christina, how much of this House-Senate split is maybe a window into the difference between how much control Kevin McCarthy has on House Republicans versus how much control that Mitch McConnell has over GOP senators? I think that's definitely an element. I also, the the House arguably was more affected by this, right? Their chamber was breached while members were in it. The, you know, shooting was on the other side of the House gallery. I mean, there's not that much of a distinction, but I do, some of the members that I have talked to sort of indicated to me that it felt slightly more personal um, and that that was just something that like alarmed them more. And, And it's a hard... Um, when you look at where some of these members that voted the other way are, you know, a lot of this is politics and there's not going to be a lot that McCarthy can do on this topic, you know, for that group of people. And, and it's kind of reminds me of the fight over Liz Cheney, um, you know, which in the end, um, she's out and McCarthy got his way with the rest of the caucus. And um, that seems to be where the majority of the members are. But it it will be interesting to watch for his own political future. I, I have many thoughts about that, so, which I imagine we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Jack, what about you when it comes to the differences between uh, McCarthy's leadership and, and uh, McConnell's leadership? Well, uh, differences between the House and the Senate. Uh, a House minority leader has very, very little power to compel members to do anything. But also... Uh, the, uh, this is where bicameralism kicks in. When I worked in the New York State Senate, I remember uh, a term that was in common use, a one-house bill. A one-house bill is a bill that passes one chamber, every, and people who support it can do so uh, in the comfort of knowing it will never become law because it will never pass the other chamber. Uh, so I think uh, a lot of members uh, voted for this knowing that the Senate uh, would ultimately block it. Uh, so they get the best of both worlds uh, in a constituency that might be uh, sympathetic to, uh, uh, to creating a commission. They can say I voted for it, and then they don't have a commission in the end anyway. One more thing on Kevin McCarthy's leadership. Bit of an open secret of his desire to be House Speaker. 35 Republicans going against his wishes had me wondering if support for him is eroding. Uh, then I heard Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, she stirred up controversy when she compared wearing masks to Jews being forced to wear a gold star, her quote, by the Nazis. And by the way, it was a yellow star, not a gold star. Gold stars typically are associated with good things. Um, it, it took a little while, but Kevin McCarthy eventually said that she was wrong and that her comparison was appalling and that the uh, House Republican Committee condemns this language. In Green's response, she brought up McCarthy's counterpart in the House, Nancy Pelosi. You have to have respect for Nancy Pelosi and that she never allows attacks on her own. And she defends them even when they sleep with Chinese spies, uh, uh, when they when they attack Israel, when they stand with Hamas terrorism, and that when their rhetoric is so disgusting and that Antifa uh, pro-Palestinian rioters are on the streets attacking American Jews. You know, Nancy Pelosi stands with her own um, and Kevin McCarthy never had to say a word. He could have said, you know, you should ask Marjorie about her words and and ask her what she had to say that would have been the right answer for him 
Jack, this is a, a brand new member of uh, the House uh, talking like this uh, against her party's leadership in the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy. Now, to be clear, the House has to flip from McCarthy to be Speaker. But even if it does, I mean, how strong does McCarthy's hold on his caucus look like to you? Uh, you never can tell with leadership elections from a distance, but uh, Kevin McCarthy is trying to uh, to ride the tiger. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of, uh, to put it bluntly, wackos in the Republican conference, and uh, he's tried to make nice with them. But uh, uh, with folks like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's never enough. And uh, if uh, he has a narrow majority after the next election, some of them might decide, hey, let's... Uh, uh, let's have an internal uh, challenge to his, uh, his leadership. And it's possible that there could be uh, a serious contest. Uh, so uh, he's trying to ride the tiger, but he could end up inside. Yeah, Christina, when it, when, when it comes to this, is this more centered just because it's Marjorie Taylor Greene who is very outspoken, uh, this defiance, or is it more indicative of what uh, McCarthy's uh, status is with House Republicans? I think it's just, it's it's a harbinger of what could be, right? Um, I came of age in Tom DeLay's Washington. Um, I covered John Boehner as speaker. And I just see this as a very different party right now. If I were a betting woman, I would bet that Kevin McCarthy will not be speaker, even if the Republicans take over the House um, for exactly what Jack has outlined. There will be internal dissension. And while, you know, that sort of quote unquote freedom caucus wing of the party still is not the majority, it's influential. And with Donald Trump being the wild card, I just wouldn't count on anything um, that you're not going to see even, you know, Elise Stefanik, (laughs) who just got the Liz Cheney job, um, holding that gavel if they take power back because um, they are agitating for fight and agitating for change. And McCarthy has sort of had one foot in each world for a while. And um, I, I don't think this is going to end well for him politically. Funny thing is, uh, Christina, Green also called out Stefanik for go- falling in line behind <laughs> McCarthy on this. So yeah, it, uh, there's a lot of uh, back and forth going on in the House GOP right now. We're talking state of affairs with Jack Pitney from Claremont McKenna College and Christina Bellantoni from USC Annenberg. All right, bringing it back to LA now. The headline of KPCC politics reporter Libby Denkman's latest story is Garcetti to India speculation is now an open secret. And that's because it's being discussed openly, even though it's not official. County Supervisors Hilda Solis, uh, Janice Hahn, and Holly Mitchell, they had fun with it at an L.A. Metro Board of Directors meeting, which is chaired by Eric Garcetti. Now, Garcetti has declined to comment that he is uh, President Biden's choice to be ambassador to India. So first, uh, Christina, what are the mechanics of what would happen next if Eric Garcetti were indeed to leave? Well, so, you know, the first thing is it, it doesn't just snap you're there in, in India. Um, he would have to go through Senate confirmation. Um, presumably, he's already done all the vetting and all of, you know that. So whenever this announcement comes, which we expect Biden to announce all of his ambassadors at once, which is one reason why they're sort of loosely confirming it without making the actual announcement. You know, then you're going to have a process. It's also going to be about to be summer in Washington, which tends to be a pretty slow time. I don't know that there's like a huge incentive for the Senate to like move quickly on these. So uh, we'll see, you know, how that goes. And then, you know, the the city council is a power empowered 
to appoint an interim mayor. Uh, from a money saving perspective, like that's that's an argument you can have to say like, you don't need to have a special election immediately um, to fill a term that is gonna last, you know, a year and a half. Um, politically, there, it's complicated because they could appoint Nuri Martinez, the president, um, you know, sort of like act, as acting mayor, but since she plans to run, you know, likely, that just, it, it could be a mess politically. So do you hold just like a figurehead there for a little bit of time and then you have this election next year? Now, don't forget that the election being in 2022 is a big deal because it used to be that LA had off-year elections and they changed it to be able to have more turnout. You know, turnout in LA in municipal matters is dismal. It's actually pretty depressing. And so this was an attempt to get it tied to midterm election, um, sort of be out there, you know, tied to an even year um, where there's federal elections. And um, that is something that I would expect they would want to keep Right. And rather than have an off year and just have somebody who comes in for a little while, you get somebody up to speed. So, um, you know, there's, there's just political considerations that, that they're going to have to think about. Um, and yeah. from a money saving perspective, that could be it. But the recall election could complicate that because if that gets yeah. scheduled for November, then maybe you could argue you piggyback on that. Um, and then that actually gets potentially huge turnout. You remember the song, Nobody Walks in L.A.? Well, Christina, I think uh, when it's a municipal election, nobody walks to the polls in L.A. I think that's that could have been the song if they were you know, singing about that. Uh, coming up, we're going to get into, uh, you mentioned the recall, Christina. We're going to get into that coming up uh, when Take Two continues. Also, what kind of a scrum will break out if Eric Garcetti does indeed decide to leave? That's coming up next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes... You need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. I'm Ian Martinez. We're back with State of Affairs. We're talking to Jack Pitney, professor at Claremont McKenna College. Also with us, Christina Bellantoni, journalism professor and media center director at USC Annenberg. We're going to get to uh, Governor Gavin Newsom and the recall election in just a minute. We ended the last segment talking about uh, the possibilities that uh, might happen if uh, Eric Garcetti indeed leaves uh, his post as mayor of Los Angeles and becomes ambassador to India. Um, Jack Pitney, what what kind of a scrum do you think would break out to be the next mayor of L.A.? Because Christina broke down some of the mechanics that have to happen, but then the politics will surely follow. Yeah, there is no shortage of political ambition in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, there are any number of people who are uh, looking at it. Uh, city attorney Mike Fuhr has already declared uh, that he's uh, uh, going to run. Uh, you uh, a lot of other people, members of the city council, Kevin DeLeon, Mark Ridley Thomas. Uh, so this is going to be a grand fight of ambition among various groups and constituencies in the city. And uh, there's going to be no shortage of political news coming out of this. 
Christina, what do you think will matter? I know I'm asking you to project way ahead in advance, but what do you think will matter to voters in L.A. when they consider who their next mayor will be? Man, <laughs> that's a, it's a, an interesting question. I mean, I think it. What does the economy look like in as we try to recover from this? You know, devastating. What will likely be at least a year and a half by the time the voters do go to the polls, maybe you know, two and a half years. Um, thinking about you know, the homelessness crisis is so severe, um, and you know, cl- any climate efforts you're doing or you know the olympics like that can't outshine any of that like the the troubles are very visible and have only been exacerbated uh since the pandemic so i think it'll be a matter of like how do people feel when they walk around like what does it feel like and uh that could you know just maybe lead to some sort of progressive change it's entirely possible you know we've also had seen a lot of change in social justice issues over the last um several years you know since garcetti was elected and um, i would just i would expect that all of the issues that have really played out over the last year would be on the ballot in december eric garcetti had um, said that he declined a position in the biden administration because there was so much work to do in los angeles and yeah there was a covid surge and, and pretty regular protests over policing in his front yard but um jack i mean what do you think is la in, in that much of a better place than it was then that he would be like okay i'm good to go i'm, I'm done with this job uh i kind of doubt it i don't think <laughs> yeah. that's the, the true story i know that's a surprise uh uh, more likely, uh, a position uh, that he wanted it uh, simply wasn't being offered to him. Uh, and so he tried to put the best face on it by saying, well, uh, I, I wasn't interested in any, anyway. So not, you know, not that much has changed in the past six months. Uh, and uh, you know, the question is, um, uh, you know, how his nomination would proceed, what would happen in the Senate and so on. One more thing on Garcetti, Christina. What's in it for him to be ambassador to India, you think? Well, you know, one of the knocks against him when he was being considered, you know, sort of for anything in the Biden administration, as Jack alludes to, is that he doesn't have any foreign policy experience. And, you know, in the years that I've known him since I've been in L.A., you hear him talking about, um, well, you know, we we have so much of a relationship with Asia Pacific. We um, have our partners to the south and the north. You know, he, he tries to <laughs> L.A. is clearly a global city, yeah. but that can't really match for actual foreign policy experience. And look, like it is, this is not going to be a cush job to be an ambassador to India, right? This is, it's in a yeah. really, really bad um, state when it comes to the climate, um, when it comes to COVID, there you know, was a lot happening there. And my guess is Biden's going to put him to work. And he's young, he has a lot of opportunity, you know, if he doesn't do anything embarrassing, you know, he's got plenty of things he could come back and do, including, you know, come back and have a political future in California when the timing is better, um, you know, for statewide office or something yeah. else. All right, let's go now. Uh, speaking of statewide office, uh, the governor, Gavin Newsom, he has proposed state budget uh, $267 billion and change is being reviewed by the legislature. could be signed by June 15th. Coincidentally, the, the same day the state is expected to fully reopen from restrictions. Christina, we haven't had a chance to ask you about the budget. Uh, what did you make of the budget and what parts stick out to you the most? Sure. And I will admit, uh, now that I don't have to do this for my job at the LA Times, um, <laughs> I don't read the budget super closely now. You didn't have fun um, doing I, that? That sounds like a blast. Yeah. <laughs> um, as the mother of a four-year-old, I'm really interested in You've got your own TK. budget, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm really interested in the TK proposal. Ah, okay, I see. Um, because, you know, our son actually is in this weird category where his birthday falls outside, so like he's not eligible to be part of TK. 
um, because of the month that he's born in. And um, that's challenging. So like, I like the idea of expanding that, but it makes a lot of sense personally. But my sense too, is that this is a budget that really prioritizes, you know, helping people who need it the most. And that's something that, you know, I'm personally in favor of, I think that it can, you know, again, help the, the fact that we were able to collect enough taxes and have, you know, this, this unexpected windfall at a time when the state is suffering, like it's an opportunity to really help. And that's good. And um, I, you know, we sort of joke about fire season. Um, but I, I also think that um, this is it's just something to like every governor and like state legislatures going to have to think about what are those next disasters ahead for us the disaster was a global pandemic um in the last this current iteration but there will be more and so then like how do you shore up your reserves and make sure that you're helping people and prepare people for for when there's another disaster jack when i asked you uh, a little while back uh, what you thought of the recall election budget uh, you called it that's what you called it a recall election budget and I, so as they say in the nfl upon further review is that still the call for you Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, as far as uh, budgets go, you know, what to do with this enormous surplus, that is the ultimate good position for any uh, governor facing an election, or in this case, a recall to be in. Uh, and uh, there was some thinking that maybe the, uh, Newsom wanted to put off the recall, but now there's some thinking in the Democratic Party, particularly Senator Steve Blazer, uh, to, uh, to move it up, to make it earlier, to take advantage of the good news and do it before fire season hits uh, and some you know, bad things could happen in the future. And uh, it's all related to the budget and the good news that comes along with it. This is me just projecting myself in Gavin Newsom's head for a second. Wouldn't you think that he would want to have, I know it's not possible, but he would want to have the recall election June 15th. Here's the budget. Here's $267 billion. Everything's wide open. Let's vote on a recall. You know, from, from the pandemic perspective, Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's, you know, the budget. I just don't know that that many people pay attention to it. It's not like you're getting, you know, a check signed by Gavin Newsom in your mailbox. Um, so, you know, slightly <laughs> different from that. And, and Californians, you know, again, I, I think are savvy um, on kind of what the politics of this are. I mean, we're, we haven't talked about the lottery um, winning uh, for, for getting a vaccine, but that's that's going to be something that I think a lot of people are going to pay probably more attention to than the budget. Can you imagine? Yeah. It's Christina Bellantoni, journalism professor and media center director at USC Annenberg. Also with us, Jack Pitney, professor at Claremont McKenna College and also author of the book, Un-American, the Fake Patriotism of Donald J. Trump. Jack, Christina, have a great uh, Memorial Day weekend. You too. You too. All right, moving on. Cal State University LA is set to hold its first ever Native American graduation ceremony on Sunday. The virtual reception is happening after more than a decade of struggle by students and faculty. KPCC's Adolfo Guzman Lopez reports. Last November, Melissa Alcala agreed to join a couple of other alumni to talk to Cal State LA's newly founded American Indian Student Association. And they kind of just gave us space to share our own stories and our journeys. And the whole graduation situation kind of just came up while we were telling our story. Her story? She grew up in L.A.'s Lincoln Heights. She's Navajo and earned her bachelor's degree from Cal State L.A. in 2009. The graduation situation? In their senior year, she and her cousin, who's also Navajo, walked into Cal State L.A.'s Cross-Cultural Center to sign up for the Native American graduation ceremony. They were told there was none. I remember being so emotional. 
like what do you mean it doesn't exist and i remember thinking like do i not exist like does my culture not exist like why wouldn't that not exist as of november of last year cal state la still did not have a native american graduation ceremony alcala remembers a student on the call saying let's organize one Students' big advantage this year, there's now a Native American professor who's sponsoring their activities. A few months ago, the university gave them the green light to hold the reception online. Two Native graduating students are taking part, along with dozens of fellow students, family, and friends. Alexandria Yellowhair, a junior majoring in social work, agreed to organize it. She grew up in Downey, and she's Navajo. She's not doing all the work. I basically just reached out to a bunch of family members and community members because we're all talented, we all got skills, and I wanted to give them work to put this ceremony together. Those kinds of networks are one of the building blocks other Cal State campuses in Southern California have used for more than half a century to create robust Native American studies and student support programs. But those campuses have something that Cal State LA doesn't have, administrations that prioritize hiring of Native faculty, relationships with local tribes, and associated student bodies willing to devote significant funds for programming. Craig Stone says that doesn't mean Cal State LA is behind. He's director of the American Indian Studies program at Cal State Long Beach. Cal State LA is its own place, you know. It the land speaks to it in different ways, you know, and supports those people there differently than it supports people here. How public institutions support Native Americans is important. There are fewer than 1,000 American Indians across Cal State's 23 campuses, yet California and L.A. County have more Native Americans than any other county and state in the nation. Native graduation ceremonies and university acknowledgments that the campus sits on formerly Native land, that's a bare minimum, says Scott Andrews. He's the director of American Indian Studies at Cal State Northridge. One of the problems with land acknowledgments is they tend to just be some words that officials say at given moments, but they don't really alter the relationship of the university to the uh, Native nation that's nearby or whose land they occupy. In an email, a Cal State LA spokeswoman said the administration has supported the graduation ceremony, but the professor organizing it, Kimberly Robertson, disagrees, saying the funds for the reception came from the student group and the cross-cultural center. For now, students helping each other is one of the foundations of Native American support at Cal State L.A. Alexandria Yellowhair wove a beaded tassel cover about the size of a quarter for a graduating student who's also Navajo. She's looking forward to Sunday's online ceremony. She says she feels... Joy for my fellow students, joy for our small community, and accomplished because... I put this together, and I put love and art into it. Yellowhair hopes next year's organizer does the same, because it will be her turn to graduate. Covering higher education, I'm Adolfo Guzman Lopez. Forte 2 coming right up. Stick around. People get ready. Why do Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley love what they love? And who will prevail in a live quiz show? Are you ready to have a good time? Go Fact Yourself is back live at the Crawford. 
Join hosts J. Keith Van Stratton and Helen Hong for a night of trivia and super secret surprise guests in this live taping of the Quiz Show podcast. It's March 23rd. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Amy Martinez. In the South L.A. neighborhood of University Park, there's a two-acre lot filled with 21 idle oil wells. They were shut off back in 2013 after complaints from residents who said fumes gave them headaches and nosebleeds. That environmental hazard got a lot of attention in various stories from the L.A. Times and the radio program Latino USA. But now, according to a report from online news site Capital in Maine, there is another threat posed by the dormant wells. Last year, public officials warned of a public hazard and called for the wells to be sealed off. But a year later, that has yet to happen. Here to talk more about the situation, we reached out to Ingrid Lobet, climate and energy reporter for Capital in Maine, who told us what she found. What my reporting shows is that even with these wells turned off, according to engineers, there's a risk, and it's a different risk. You're not getting exposure from operating active wells. It's that um, pressure can be building up inside these turned off wells, and there could be a leak, and the gases that could leak could be flammable. Oh, wow. So that you're talking about like destruction of property or even loss of life at that point. Right. If things were really to go wrong, that's right. Yeah. So, how, OK, how does then leaving these wells unsealed lead to the higher pressure and, and, and these potential explosions? Well, uh, for that information, I relied only on engineers and I spoke mm-hmm. with or read the testimony in the record of four different engineers. And they say that the pressure actually comes from the underground formation itself. So um, there's pressure underground. And if you have subsidence, that in- that pressure could be increasing. And other engineers told me that it will just increase just because they're turned off. There's pressure that naturally increases and should be, as they say, bled off periodically and should be completely bled off before you try to permanently plug or seal off these wells. Definitely something that um, the agencies have been talking about and that the operator or the former operator has also been talking about, but it seems like they haven't come to an agreement of exactly how that's going to be done, or maybe most importantly, A, who's going to pay for it. The company estimates that's going to cost $10 million. Now, you know, stepping back, I mean, this story is really reminiscent of many stories where residents of low-income communities complain of hazards, environmental hazards in their communities, yet very little action is taken to immediately fix the situation. And and this has been an issue for a year. What are a few of the factors playing into why maybe the response has been so slow? Well, yeah, I I agree. I don't think you can rule out at all um, what community this is taking place. Where is this site actually located? I, I can say that based on the reporting, as I mentioned earlier, of the other reporters who talked about the health effects back a decade ago, the community really feels like it took a very long time to get the attention of the authorities. I think they brought out Senator Barbara Boxer and the EPA um, back around 2013 and the chief administrator for the region, uh, according to the LA Times, was sickened as he was actually on the site, which is something you just don't really hear about. Uh, He himself was sickened and he said other members of his staff were. um, But it wasn't until you had this really high level, uh, these 
powerful people who arrived on the site that that the wells were actually shut down. Now, now they've been in a shutdown condition for years. And why has it taken this long to come to a, a, a permanent resolution of the situation? Yeah, I think people can draw their own conclusions. And now there's a, a big legal battle between the city and Alanco. Uh, Alanco's the well's owners, uh, which uh, might slow down this whole process even more. What's the status of this uh, legal battle? Well, most recently there was supposed there was an arraignment. If you're talking about uh, there's a criminal case, this the city has for, has filed 25 misdemeanors against two executives at the company and the company itself, so three parties. And an arraignment on that was postponed a couple of times, perhaps related to COVID. And then most recently, earlier in May, uh, there was supposed to be an arraignment and the company is um, represented by Carmen Trutanich, the former uh, city attorney. And his position is, listen, you guys are the owners of these wells now. So it's really your problem. So if you want them sealed, then we don't really have very much to do with that at this point. You have revoked our right to operate at the site and it runs through mineral rights that you own. And so it's, it's your problem. Is it likely, Ingrid, that there'll be any sort of resolution on this sometime soon? I really can't speculate on that, A. Uh, you, as you pointed out, you have a th- there's a civil order that is currently in the process before a state body. There's a criminal case that is currently uh, taking place in the court. And then you have the engineering matter of... How are you going to permanently seal these wells and who's going to pay for it? And so meanwhile, people are kind of dealing with this. The people in that area, the community is just still dealing with this inaction. Yeah, people in the community have been relying on an interagency task force, which they had to fight to have a seat at. And they feel that they were not adequately informed uh, of the risk that just having the wells sitting idle Poses. There is an organizer uh, with um, people, not Pozos, who um, told me that now that they have a better understanding that even wells that are idle may pose a risk to the community, that they definitely plan to step up their organizing. That was Ingrid Lobet, climate and energy reporter for Capital and Maine. Ingrid, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. All right, coming up, some tunes for your long three-day weekend. A couple of L.A. musicians taking their art on the road. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. An unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer, the club that reopened as the only unionized strip club in the U.S., We just had a lot of love for each other. And we solidified that the only way we're going to be able to do something is if we organize together. The strippers behind the headlines and the secret and messy work of unionizing their club. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC. In most places, you get your podcast. Tell me Martinez. All right, here's a little zen to head into the weekend. All right, imagine 
a little red 1971 Volkswagen bus pulling up to your driveway. Two violinists pop out. They've been on the road for hours. They're exhausted. They need a shower, a place to park overnight. And they ask if they can play for you. Reporter Paulina Chirasova brings us a story of Musi Caravan, two L.A. violinists who hit the road during the pandemic, driving through politically divided counties and states and bringing music to farmers, winemakers, and anyone else who they meet along the way. You play like Korean, I play like French. Yeah, just you play. Sometimes I complain that he plays too free, you know? Yeah, I'm French. <laughs> and then he complains that I'm sometimes too square, you know? She's but, but I'm being rhythmical. Etienne and Yuan are concert violinists. Etienne is the artistic director and founder of Delirium Musicum, a Los Angeles-based string orchestra. He is also the newly named artist-in-residence at the Soraya, a state-of-the-art venue in L.A., while Yuan is an international competition winner with over 6 million views on YouTube. Their mission is simple, to bring joy and human bonding through music. And in a time when our states are more divided than ever, they believe music can bring us a little closer. It's more that music is going to save the world. Uh, we all have the same dreams, we all have the same worries, we all have the same, you know, everything in life. Um, no matter what political, social, religious background you have. And, and it's about, you know, breaking that wall that we have and bond together and create stories. Music Caravan emerged as a project of Delirium Musicum. But becoming traveling musicians on the road was far from what the two violinists had envisioned back in March of 2020. Delirium Musicum was in full swing. They were getting ready for tours, preparing for a recording session with a major record label, and they were just about to play a concert in Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts. We're really looking forward to it. Ticket was already like... It was sold out. Then the pandemic hit, and everything stopped. Concert halls suddenly went silent. Concerts, sporting events, and festivals here in the Southland and across the country are being canceled or postponed. Sad news tonight, the L.A. Philharmonic has canceled its concerts for the rest of the year. The decision follows the Hollywood Bowl, the Ford and Walt Disney Concert Hall, which are all going dark due to the pandemic. And then, you know, it was like, OK, we need to do something because, mm -hmm. you know, you cannot just stop life. It's like you, you know, I still need to create. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I, I cannot live, you know. From this isolation and necessity to create, an idea was born. What if they could still continue performing? but outdoors and socially distanced. And then we started the courtyard concerts, right? They began playing in the courtyard of their apartment building in East Hollywood every Sunday. The music brought people out of their homes. From the elderly to parents with children, all kinds of listeners stepped out onto their balconies to experience live music. Thank you, and stay safe, everyone. <laughs> then they thought, what if this could be something more? What if they could bring music to people all over America, not just Los Angeles? What, how do we do that? It's like, we can't yeah, just do but it's like... not that I never imagined. 
that I'm gonna be living in a bus. When he talked about this idea, of course, I thought it's, it's crazy. While searching on Craigslist, they scrolled through hundreds of vehicles until they found the one. A little 1971 VW bus. A vehicle with personality. The metal plates of the chassis were rusted, there were bumps and scratches, and the paint was faded. But after they tuned the engine, bought new curtains, and painted it bright red, it was ready. It's extremely cute. People will come to you. It triggers imagination. It triggers stories because most people have a story about a VW bus about 50 years ago. And nobody can throw you out when they see this cute candy on wheels. They named him Boris. And finally, in August, they hit the road. It was the start of their own great American road trip. Two violinists from foreign countries, traveling across the states from one place to the next, trying to bring people together. I never thought about it as me being French or, or not from here. I always felt it that I'm... I'm coming to people, they don't know my background, I don't know their background, but I see them just as people. Meeting people along the way has given them a sense of place in America. Where do I belong? You know, am I French? Am I Hungarian? Am I American? Am I European? Am I, where do I really come from? Where do I go? It became like normal to be the foreigner, to be on the road. For Yuan, being on the road helped her cope with grief, like so many others in 2020. Her dad passed away last year, just as they started their trip. Because of my um, what happened to my father and stuff. The beginning was very hard, but it was more helpful for me to travel and meet new people and then this crazy time on the road. There's a kind of freedom in not knowing where the road will take them next. From cinematic landscapes, across deserts, through forests. And the forest, redwood forest, and these huge trees, and you go up and down and the morning, you have the, the, the sun coming up. Like, oh my god, this is like so beautiful and stunning. And, and at the same time, I'm so small, you know, compared to this earth, I'm nothing. I really like that feeling. The bus is really tiny, really, really tiny. There's a small sink, there's a water tank. And we have a small icebox. We store our food. People gave yeah. us meat from their farm. It's like we, we butchered uh, an old rooster that we made cocoa vin with it, which is, you know, rooster that you cook for very long in wine. It's a French dish. It's like, you know, Michelin star restaurant just in a bus. <laughs> Their bus has taken them from farms, groves, and vineyards to a Christian Orthodox monastery on an island in Washington. We're finally back on the road. Along the road, they've met all kinds of people, from Trump supporters, to Americans on the liberal side, to war veterans, and hippies who traveled in VW buses years ago. People from all political, religious, and social backgrounds have welcomed Yuan and Etienne into their homes. They open their door, no matter what. They hear our story, what we're doing at this time, and they immediately feel that, oh, I need to do something good too. You know, in Napa, mm -hmm. our driveway hosts were pro-Trump. And then we invited to the garden concert people who were just a block away, who were VW people, so pretty much old hippies. Yeah. They were both surprised to find themselves, you know, in the same place. But 
hey, it was courteous, it was nice. They all enjoyed each other, and and I think they saw that you know we're we're human beings before everything. From Oceanside, California, they drove north through Ventura County, heading towards the farms outside of Ojai, 80 miles north of LA. They parked Boris between vast groves of citrus, walnut, and olive trees near the farm of the Ojai Olive Oil Company. So last year was a huge season, absolutely humongous. After 14 years of working in the classical music industry in Los Angeles, Alice Asquith moved to Ojai where she eventually got involved with the family business. And this year's going to be very small. So an olive doesn't contain Amidst the olive trees in a little canyon by a pond, Etienne and Yuan set up their music stands so for the next song, and played for a little audience of five. Poland, but not that far from France because he's from Chopin and he loves to be seen as French. Yes, he did. And it's uh, Nocturne, opus 9, number 2. like somebody took them from some magical place and plonked them down there. There they were. And they could have been anywhere. You know, it was just, it was, it, was, it was about music. That's all it was. It was about music. And of course, down at the Grove, they could hear them. So everybody stopped and listened, you know, and they all said the same thing. It was like time stopped. I felt free out there. Free. Mm. Flying. Really enjoyed your music very much. Thank you so much. Love this. If we play with our heart, then they will love it, whatever we play. So it gives really faith in humanity. People are compassionate, people are respectful, people have dreams. And when you put all this together, it's, it's pretty amazing that to be alive. Although Music Caravan began as a response to a deadly pandemic, Etienne and Yuan say they're just getting started. So I'm wondering, you know, if we don't have those barriers because of the pandemic, then can we go even further? You know, can we have 50 people, you know, in their backyards instead of three? It feels like it's in the continuity of what was meant to do. And... And maybe with more musicians, you know, like have a real music caravan with many buses and many musicians following and just (laughs) playing outside randomly. The Little Red Bus has taken Etienne and Yuen from Southern California all the way to the Canadian border. But one thing remains constant. The music and the power it has in bringing people together. I'm Paulina Cherizova. And this just in, one of the violinists you just heard, Etienne Gara, has been named artist in residence at the Soraya Theater at Cal State Northridge. Just one look at you. 
All right, that's it for uh, Take Two this week. Our producers are Itzi Quintanilla and Julia Paskin. Julia and Itzi also direct the show. Phoenix O helped us out with production. Sophia James is our news apprentice, and Take Two is engineered by Hasmik Bogosian. Our senior producer and editor is Megan Larson. You can find uh, all the shows this week uh, on, well, actually, wherever you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. There's some news there about me if you want to go check it out something happened to me this week it's all there on twitter uh thanks for listening thanks for trusting us with your time take two is back uh, monday at two talk to you then hey it's brian the host of how to la a podcast that is a love letter to los angeles independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. Listen to Revival House on How to L.A. wherever you listen to podcasts.